Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs number 26 through 73, How Do We Know Anything About God? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Uh, My name is Father Adam Streitenberger, and today we begin the epic tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, Just, I guess, for logistic purposes, you might over... First of all, I think you can miss a class if or I miss a session if you need to for whatever reason. Um, probably the thing that's most necessary, I think, is to have a copy of the Catechism, if you don't already. Um, it might just help both through the flow of the class. Um, if you want to read it, you can read it. Um, if not, um, hopefully I give a good enough explanation that you don't. But part of the structure of the Catechism is that after each section, there's an in-brief summary of what has been said. So maybe um, if you don't have the time to read all of the paragraphs that we're going over, you can at least go over the in-brief section. So the uh, just, I think, an introduction to the catechism itself. Um, First of all, this, this idea of a catechism is something very ancient in the church, either a bishop would bring together a series of talks to kind of illuminate the faith, especially to those who had recently been baptized, or even at the time of the Reformation, summaries of the faith, catechisms as we know, would be written. After the Council of Trent, there was a real desire of the bishops to have an official catechism for the faith. And we call that the Catechism of Trent, or sometimes the Roman Catechism. So after the Second Vatican Council, there was a real desire by the bishops to again put out an official catechism. In 1985, there was a synod of the bishops. So Pope John Paul II gathered the bishops together for and an extraordinary synod dealing especially with the implementation of the Second Vatican Council. So that marked the uh, 20th anniversary of the close of the Second Vatican Council. And it was in that synod that it was brought up that really what we need to kind of help us to implement the teachings of the Second Vatican Council is an official catechism. In fact, the intervention was by 
Cardinal Bernard Law of Boston. He was the one who actually proposed this idea. It wasn't until for a couple more years, in fact, seven years, um, for the catechism to be kind of approved and fully written. So in June of 1992, the text was approved. The original text of the catechism was in French. So there were 12 bishops and cardinals appointed to kind of oversee the process of writing the catechism. The main cardinal, the one who supervised the whole process, was, of course, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. In June of 1992, John Paul II approved that French version of the catechism. In 1997, the official text of Latin was finally finished. So, Usually a document is written in Latin and then translated in all of the languages. But because of the size and the work of the catechism, they decided that they would first write it in French and then translate it into the Latin and make that the official text. So it took another five years for the text to be translated into Latin. And it was in 1997 that there were a few modifications made to the catechism. So even though it's the official Latin version, it's actually called the second edition, the 97 version. So if you recall, there was this sort of light tan version of the catechism. Some of you might have that. So that's the first edition, which is based on that French, the French version. And then the green one is the second edition, which is based on the final Latin translation. It has a few little modifications that you wouldn't really notice um, based on the Latin language, except in one section in uh, paragraph 2267, which deals deals with capital punishment. So John Paul II modified that paragraph. Um, for the second edition. And then, of course, in 2018, um, just recently, Pope Francis modified um, that paragraph again. The structure of the catechism is that it's split up into four parts, four parts, or what we might call four pillars. The first of the four pillars deals, we might, you could summarize it, that it deals with the creed. That's the part that we're going um, to go over in the next couple months. The second deals with the sacraments. The third deals with the Ten Commandments, or we might say morality. And then the fourth deals with prayer. So these four pillars of the catechism. That's the general structure. In our section tonight that we're going to cover, which is paragraphs 1 through 75, we're actually going to see another structure for the catechism rather than those four pillars. There's an internal structure to the catechism. Now there are, of course, other official catechetical texts. The catechism was... Part of its intention, I should say, 
the intention for the catechism was that it be a text from which different bishops or bishops' conferences could make regional or more particular catechisms for um, different segments, so like youth catechisms or things like that. In 2005, there was um, created what was called the Compendium of the Catechism, which was, it basically took the catechism and then shortened it into question and answer, uh, much like how the Baltimore Catechism was structured. From that particular book, what was called the UCAT was developed. Um, So there are these youth catechisms. However, um, there are some problems in the translation of those UCATs, so usually we kind of would refrain from using those because of the danger of the, of the poor translations. Um, and then also the American bishops, the U.S. bishops, um, based their own catechism on the official one. So there is an adult catechism um, put out by the American Conference of bishops based on this general catechism. But the catechism itself says that it's actually a text that all of the faithful should read. Um, It's not just some sort of um, official um, sort of form or model from which we develop textbooks and other catechisms. It's actually something to be read. It's not just some reference uh, tool to be put up on our library shelf, but actually something to be engaged. And uh, to that point, I would add a very personal, you know, personal aspect. So when I was um, growing up, I was raised Catholic, grew up in, in, a, in a good Catholic home. We went to Mass every Sunday. I went to public school. Um, there was no Catholic school in the town that I grew up in. At some point, the pastor decided to change the catechetical program so that it was just based on the lectionary series and that it would just be done at home, which essentially meant that I received no real catechesis, no explanation of the faith itself. Challenged by my peers as to what I believed, I said, well, I saw um, as I was in high school that there was this new official catechism out that told you officially what the church teaches. So I began to read it as a high schooler. I made it through it as a high schooler, so I think we can all make it through it. Um, And in the process, I came to see the beauty of the Catholic faith, and and it moved me. I think in talking about the catechism, so often people will say, as they often do with catechesis, that it only really appeals to the mind, to the intellect, that we're just kind of giving people the faith as facts or as bits of knowledge to, to get to, to, to attain, to memorize. Um, but in my experience, really, the catechism is an experience that as we read it and as we engage these truths that are being taught to us, we wrestle with them, we come to own them for ourselves, we see how they all fit together. There is something experiential about the catechism. It's not just 
some intellectual exercise, but it really kind of, I think, engages our sense of beauty, our sense of completeness, um, our sense of kind of owning the faith. So I think part of the goal of these sessions is not just for me to kind of tell you what the catechism says, but that you might on your own wrestle with it and see the beauty which the church is presenting to us in her teachings and see how they are connected. And part of that, I think, is in this initial section is really seeing the beautiful structure of the catechism. It is almost, you know, like this cathedral itself, um, a beautifully designed architectural piece um, where everything is kind of fit to, fitted together um, with a design. So let us um, dive into this text. So the general pattern that we will do is sort of a rolling commentary on the text itself. So as we go through sections, I'll point out significant paragraphs, kind of if there's some, something very significant there to point it out, or if there's something confusing or even controversial that we probably should dis- uh, talk about, then I'll point those out as well. So we begin with this prologue of the catechism, the prologue of the catechism. Um, so paragraph one in your, um, in your catechisms. It begins in the first three paragraphs to present what we call the kerygma, which is the basic message of Christianity, of God's plan for the human race, of what Christ has done for us, and of our need to respond to it which is at the heart of catechesis, is the emphasis, um, the repetition even, of this basic message of Christianity, of the kerygma, of the gospel, as we often say. Um, In the next couple paragraphs, 4 through 10, we get a a, sort of an explanation of what what catechesis is, what catechesis is. We are told in paragraph 4, quite early on, the name catechesis was given to the totality of the church's effort to make disciples, to help men believe that Jesus is the Son of God, so that believing they might have life in his name and to educate and instruct them in this life, thus building up the body of Christ. Now, when we use the word catechesis, then... On the one hand, it can explain really all that the church is trying to do, which is to make disciples and to instill in them the message of Jesus Christ. One of the kind of controversies in the last, I would say, 20 years, this sort of emphasis on evangelization and the new evangelization, is the role of catechesis in evangelization. So we're all about making disciples, proclaiming the basic message of Christianity to them. But where does catechesis fit into all of this? And we can see where there's a temptation in in some parishes and in some dioceses to kind of scrap the effort at thorough, systematic catechesis and kind of focus on just a basic presentation of Christianity, kind of a basic presentation of the kerygma. 
But what they fail to realize is actually catechesis is part and parcel of evangelization. Evangelization is not just the proclamation, the initial proclamation of the basic message of Christianity, but it also entails the formation of disciples. And that's really what at the heart of catechesis is the formation of disciples. That's why we're offering really these sessions on Sunday evenings here at the cathedral so that the cathedral can become a place where the formation of disciples is happening, where we're forming disciples for the diocese. Um, This idea then that catechesis is really the process of forming disciples. So yes, there is the basic announcement of the good news, but then what do we do next? Well, we've got to train them. We've got to show them, expound on the fullness of the creed, the fullness of Christian life and the sacraments, and then how do we live that through morality and through prayer? Um, So the catechism makes that point clearly, I think, at the beginning here, that catechesis and evangelization are inseparable. And really, in the next paragraph, paragraph six, that really catechesis... um, is connected to everything we do in the life of the church. So one of the dangers that I think we face in the life of the church is um, fads, you know, that there is something maybe we have neglected at some point in our history, and so now we want to reemphasize that, but then we reemphasize it to the point of de-emphasizing other things. Well, we've got to keep this healthy balance. In some sense, um, the purpose of the catechism from that extraordinary synod back in 1985 was that we had neglected the work of catechesis. And so by putting out an official catechism, we were going to reemphasize the need for catechesis. In some sense, the church in America and in many parts of the Western world are better catechized than they were in the early 80s. However, that doesn't mean we need to stop the work, you know, that somehow we're finished. No, it's, it's a continual, continual work. And I would even say in the life of the individual, um, catechesis is a continual work. Um, one might still have the Baltimore Catechism memorized, um, but still we want that to go deeper into their heart um, to understand it more fully. And, of course, these mysteries that we believe in can never be fully exhausted. So we continue to wrestle with them and to own them for ourselves and to be able to render an account of them to others um, in a far better way. Um, The rest of this section, um, this prologue section, deals with the structure of the catechism um, and and its purpose. which then leads us into the beginning of part one, which, as I said, is about the creed. Um, It might be kind of the easy way to summarize it. It is the profession of faith. In the first section of this part, we are presented with three chapters. We're going to kind of focus on the first chapter and begin the second chapter. Um, And it sets up 
already in paragraph 26 a grand structure. And I think it's the, um, one of the most beautiful things about the catechism. So we have this structure of the fourfold pillars, which we want to keep in mind. But a new structure is presented to us in this section. And it essentially is three parts, and they're based on an action, on actions that are happening. The first is man's search for God. The second is God reaches out to man. Now, by man, we mean the human person, lest anyone's offended. Um, And then third is man responds to God. So it's a threefold action. Man is sort of searching for God. God reaches out to man, and then man responds to that. This is the structure, um, really, of our faith and of the catechism. It's this sort of um, grand, grand structure. The first is is dealt with in chapter 1 of part 1. So it acknowledges that the human person has this desire for God. That by our nature we're capable of God and we're seeking God that we have been created for God. So it's, it's a very small treatment, and in some ways it does kind of mirror the, the finite amount of knowledge that we can have of God. The second, God reaches out to man, is really summarized in the first part. And so this second action of God reaching out to man we could call revelation. God reveals himself. Man is seeking him, and so God says something about himself. He reveals himself. And so that is the creed, the profession of faith, the content of what God has revealed about himself. And then... The third part, the third of this kind of based on these actions, man responds to God, is is part two, part three, and part four. So the response, our response to what God has revealed of himself is the life of the sacraments, is the moral life, and is prayer. That's how we respond to God's revelation of himself to us. So when we see the sacraments, morality, and prayer, we can see these as an expression of the faith. God reveals himself, and then we respond in the last three parts. So most of the catechism is actually about how we respond to what God has done for us. So, 
built into the human person is this desire. Paragraph 27 um, points to this, that within all human beings is a desire for God. Now, an objection that is made, especially by Protestants, I would say, um, or those who are kind of skeptical generally of the Catholic faith, is this first point, man's search for God. It seems as if the initiative of salvation and the initiative of grace is on the part of man, because it is man who is seeking God. That we have this sort of, yes, we have this natural capacity to God for God, um, therefore it is man who initiates the work of grace or the pursuit of grace. Now that is unfair and it's, it's bullcrap, you know? It's not really um, an authentic presentation of what the catechism is saying on this. This desire for God, this thing that launches man into searching for God, is that man has been created for God. Um, God is the initiator. God made us. He created us. And he created us in such a way that our fulfillment is only found in him. And so we're sort of magnetized in that way to seek him, to look for him. But then the objection might be, okay, um, how is it that, um, that we are seeking God? Well, why, I mean, why this claim that every human being desires God? Well, the catechism responds by saying, well, we can see by looking through cultures of every age that there is, in some sense, this pursuit, that the human being is religious by nature, that when you look at every culture, and even when we look back in the earliest signs of human civilization, there is always this aspiration for the divine, a seeking of the God, of, of, of God. So that we can fairly say that the human being is a religious being. It's part of our fulfillment, you know. And not just sort of this spiritual desire, but an actual religious desire. That there be rituals. That there be an ethical system to guide us. um, That there be a formal communal worship of the gods. These things have always been a part of human culture. But then one might object as the Catechism deals with in paragraph 29. Well, but there are so many human beings, and especially we see this in our own age and in our own culture, who have no desire for God, who um, really aren't inclined to be religious. And this, I think, is a, is, is a real problem which we all face um, in the life of our families, um, at the places of work in this culture, we encounter people who, although on the one hand we know that humans are by nature religious, we see it how irreligious or how secular our own culture is. Um, So why is this that some people, even though we are made for God, some people do not seem inclined to God? Well, the Catechism says that it happens because of many different ways, but ultimately because of the fall. Because the world is messed up because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And that attitudes arise 
perhaps because of the scandal of evil. I mean, how many people that we know have kind of ventured into agnosticism or into atheism because some tragedy in their life or in their family? They're kind of revolting against this world. That there cannot be a God if there is evil in the world. And that is one of the fundamental questions that we have to be able to render an account for. And in this section, um, in this part of the catechism, in the weeks ahead, we're going to have to tackle the problem of evil and the problem of suffering in the world. Um, It may be because of religious ignorance or indifference that they have been raised um, in a family or in a culture that doesn't practice the faith, and so therefore it has, seen, it has become something unessential or something that doesn't really speak to their life or to their experiences. It may because, be because they are more fixated and concerned about the riches of the world, about materialism, about the accumulation of possession and wealth. It may be because of the scandal of those who do believe in God and those who are religious. We so often hear the objections, um, either, well, the church is more is fixated on wealth and property, or, of course, the abuse scandal has also kind of um, um, chased many away from the practice of the faith and from belief in God. Um, or, as the Catechism says, it might just be that um, people really want to hide from God. That there is this sense that they are comfortable um, with God far away from them. Just like um, Adam and Eve hiding in the garden in Genesis. So then, what are we to do? Well, First, the Catechism challenges all of us, and it challenges the whole world, to really be attuned to their hearts. That even with the scandals, even um, with this fear, even with this revolt against evil, that we really need to be authentic in the sense of really engaging our intellect in pursuing the truth, really engaging our wills to, pers- to um, pursue the good with an upright heart. That this is what it means to be human, to understand the world by our intellect and to engage in the goodness of the world through our will. And so all of us, in order to really be human, ought to be honest in this intellectual pursuit of the Lord ought to be honest in this pursuit of what is good and what it means to be human. This is sort of the challenge of paragraph 30, which the Catechism gives to all the world, um, but also why it helps us to explain why so many do not pursue God, do not seek Him. It's because it's difficult to do it. It's difficult to really fully engage our intellect to really pursue truth, to really be honest, to really seek what is good, to really face our fears. But this is 
what really we are asked and challenged to do as human beings. It is the challenge of our nature to understand the world and what's behind and who is behind it and to understand how to be human and how to be good. In the course of this, in really being honest before the world, there are ways in which we come to recognize that there is a God. The church boldly proclaims, and this is, I think, one of the unique truths of Catholicism, which she proclaims um, to all of her brothers and sisters um, in Christianity and to all the world, is that we can come by our reason to a knowledge that there is a God, that there is a personal God. Now, we may not be able to enter into a, a particular relationship with him just by our own reason. We certainly cannot understand him fully, but we can know by our intellect that there is a personal God. And that over the years, there have been developed what we call ways, W-A-Y-S, ways. Sometimes we think of these as, we call these proofs, but they're not proofs in the scientific sense but rather, as the Catechism says in 31, they're converging and convincing arguments that point to the existence of God. They are ways for us to understand the reasonableness for our faith and our belief in God. Ways that point to the existence of this God who is concerned with us The two starting points for these have traditionally been from the world, so that the world had to have had a beginning, that the world has some trajectory to which it is going towards, that there must be some governing, someone who is governing the world, someone who has designed the world, someone who is interconnecting what appears to be coincidences in the unfolding of the world. Um, Someone who has planted truth and intelligibility within the world that we can understand it. The second ground is the human person himself. That when we look at the human person, how he is able to understand the world, how his intellect works, his ability to come to truth, or his desire for good, or the existence even of his conscience, that there are things which are definitively wrong that he ought not to do, and that there are things that he ought to do, that these, and that the the possibility of an ultimate happiness, or that the notion of an eternity, or of a hunger for the infinite, that these things point to the existence of God. Um, I think one of these beautiful proofs, which is becoming more and more emphasized um, in this age, of course, I think all of the different proofs speak, or the different ways speak, to different people. Um, So it is good to kind of understand all of the possible ways 
of God, ways to God, all these possible proofs, um, because they appeal to different people. Some people are more appreciative of a proof based on beauty. Some are more um, appreciative of a proof based on the governance of the world. Some are more inclined to this idea of of an infinite desire having um, some fulfillment in an infinite being. Um, Whatever it might be, um, I think, again, for us to render a good account, for us to be able to dialogue with the world around us, the people in our families, the people at work, um, for us to be formed into mature disciples and also to be evangelizers, I think we need to have some sort of understanding or an ability to explain all of these different ways to God. And I would even say that at different points in our, our life, um, different ways um, are more attractive to us than others. In and of themselves, though, on their own, each proof, each way, seems to be insufficient to definitively prove to someone that God exists. But when one looks at all of the proofs, it becomes quite reasonable and, un- and, um, and, and in some sense definitive that there must be this divine being who is interested in our lives. If one looks at the whole, um, the whole scope of all of the different proofs, So perhaps one individual proof is not going to convince the whole world. If that was the case, then we'd only need one proof or one way. But it seems as if the Lord has given us many of them, dozens of them, perhaps even hundreds of them, because of the unique situation of every human being. And also to show by sheer quantity the reasonableness for our belief in God's existence. The Catechism does talk about um, a couple of these, um, but of course, you know, the more classic, um, classically um, um, proofs are those of Thomas's, Thomas's five ways. Um, so that might be something for one to go um, research on their own. I don't have the time to go through all of Thomas's five ways and get through all of this in an hour, so. But Um, Nonetheless, they're out there. And I think in some sense, probably each one of us, if we have been honest with ourselves in our attempt to kind of grow in the faith, we've stumbled upon our own ways and our own proofs that have helped us to see the reasonableness for this belief in God. Um, Paragraph 35 emphasizes this idea that God, that we have, man has the ability to come to a knowledge of the existence of a personal God. Some people will only say that by reason, we can only know that a God exists, some sort of prime mover or final end. But the First Vatican Council made clear and defined that we have the ability to come to the knowledge of a personal God by means of our reason. Now, part of that affirmation, which is covered in this next section that we're getting ready to go into, 
is that as Catholics, we really believe in the dignity of the human person, which means that we believe that those things which are essential to human, to being human, though they may be messed up by the fall, are not lost. And one of those things is our reason, our ability to know the world. So we go into this section, um, the knowledge of God according to the church, which begins on paragraph 36. It says, man has this capacity because he is created in God's in the image of God, that because we are made in God's image, there are certain things which are essential to what it means to be human. One is that we are rational, that we can understand the world. Another is that we are free, that we are able to exercise our will and make choices. In the historical conditions in which he, he finds himself, however, man experiences many difficulties in coming to know God by the light of reason alone. So, first, our reason is reliable. However, the fall has happened and it has affected us. Now, it does not mean, as some would say, that man has lost his ability to know at all or to make any choice at all. Um, The Catholic position is a nice, beautiful, balanced thing. If we lost our ability to know or our ability to make choices, we would cease to be human. The fall would have meant our complete and utter destruction. We would not have been humans. We would have been primates. Um, However, the fall has affected our ability to know the world and to make choices. We do live in a fallen world. And so the catechism in paragraph 37 points out to some of the difficulties we face, especially in particular coming to a knowledge of God. Um, This is paragraph 37, and it's a quote from um, the document by Pius XII, Humani Generis, Humani Generis, which came out, um, I believe, in the 1950s, the early 1950s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So, first of all, the relation between God and man wholly transcends the visible order of things. So, one of the things that affects our ability to know God is that God is infinite and we are finite. That God is infinite and we are finite. And our experience and and, and our reason and senses are geared to knowing the finite, to knowing the things in the visible world. And so there is a sense where our ability to know God is limited because he is infinite and and invisible. Second, um, there is this inability because of the fall or this sort of damage that has happened to us to really um, self-surrender, we're told, which is necessary to coming to a knowledge of God, this real ability to surrender to him. Third, 
Um, the human mind, in its turn, is hampered in the attaining of such truths. Um, first of all, because of the impact of the senses. So, our senses have been damaged. We do not perceive as well as we used to before the fall. This is clear, you know, I um, have to wear glasses. I cannot see the world as I ought to see, you know. This is proof of this, of this truth. Our senses are damaged, and so, of course, our knowledge is based on what we bring in from our senses, so our senses are damaged. This is going to, to make difficult um, a perfect knowledge. Second, um, our senses, our, appetite, or our appetites are disordered. So the fall has... Um, set our appetites, our desires, into rebellion. They do not listen to our reason and to our will as they ought to. And so we're blinded. We become blinded by anger, or we become blinded by lust, or we become blinded by hunger, or blinded by thirst. And these things affect our ability to know. But in all of these things, the infinite God the infinite, infinite, invisible God, the inability of our will to really surrender to God and, and with that to really seek the desire or seek this knowledge of God. Third, or third, our senses. And fourth, our appetites. Those things are messed up because of the fall. However, the reason, reason itself still works. The problem is, is it's influenced by these other factors. And so even though we can come to a knowledge that there is this personal God who seeks us, who responds to us, who is out there, who has made us, we cannot go farther in the relationship. We can know that he exists, but we cannot come to know his name or his plan for us or um, what he is all about. And that brings us to this second action, that we seek him as best we can by the aid of our reason We come to recognize that he exists and that he does have this concern for us, but then he reaches out to us. And he reaches out to us because he knows that we need to know him for our fulfillment and for our happiness. And so he has come to speak to us, to reveal himself to us. And in this, paragraph 39 tells us that God does not dismiss our dignity, our ability to know the use of our reason and our freedom. He doesn't dismiss these in the act of revelation, but in revealing himself, he engages these things. He gives us knowledge that we can slowly come to understand and take possession of for ourselves over time, over the centuries, over the generations. 
He doesn't just force this knowledge upon us, but he reveals it in personal ways so that by using our will and our hearts, we might come to know him, not just in an intellectual sense of the content that he's throwing out at us, but that from our hearts we might enter into a genuine relationship with him in the course of these centuries as he reveals himself, these generation, over these generations as he reveals himself. We become ever closer to him. In coming to know what God has revealed about himself to us over the ages, over the centuries, we also have to realize that um, even when it comes to revelation, we cannot fully understand God in all of his infinite mystery. There is this beautiful line which is taken from the Lateran Council 4 that Between creator and creature, no similitude can be expressed without without implying an even greater dissimilitude. That no matter how much we might be like God, or something created might be like God, it is infinitely more dissimilar than it is similar. We are infinitely more unlike God then we are like God. I think this is crucial, especially when we deal in the future with very difficult mysteries to understand. So, for instance, um, the Trinity itself or um, the divine and human natures of Christ. That whatever analogies we might try to use to try to explain these mysteries, that God is infinitely dissimilar to those analogies. Um, Then we go to chapter 2, which begins the setup for this second part that God reaches out to man in the, in the, the work of revelation, the revelation of God. God seeks to reveal himself, not just to give us a knowledge of of him, of intellectual facts, but so that we might enter into a relationship with him. Paragraph 52 beautifully tells us, God who dwells in unapproachable light wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons in his only begotten son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. He really is inviting us to share divine life with him. Because we are limited and finite, God knows that this is beyond our capacity, not just to to do on our own. Of course, we've already kind of dealt with that in the sense that we are limited in what we can know about God, both 
in his infinite nature, but also in our own abilities. But he also knows that what he is revealing about himself, his divine life, is something which would blow our minds if it was fully revealed in all of its glory all at once. Even what we know of God through public revelation, if that was all revealed to us 5,000 years ago, our minds would have exploded because of the magnitude and the beauty of it. And so God gradually revealed himself over time. St. Irenaeus says, St. Irenaeus was a bishop in 200 AD, um, a martyr, he wrote this wonderful, wonderful text, Adversus Heresies Against All Heresies. He tells, he uses this image that really revelation, God's revelation, is, a, is like two people becoming accustomed to each other. Um, we might use the image of a man and a woman when they meet, or we might use the image of any, you know, any of us when we first meet someone. Um, you know, there's initial revelation of, well, what's your name, or who are you, or where do you work, or these, these sort of building blocks of knowledge. There may be things that seem more superficial, you know, like, oh, what kind of ice cream do you like? Or, you know, um, what's your favorite sports team? Although that can be quite significant. We don't want to dismiss that. But, you know, there, there is this sort of gradual little bits. And, of course, if, you know, if you, you know, met someone for the first time and they told you absolutely everything about them, you know, and the story of their entire life, and, you know, their worst fears and their nightmares, you would think the person is crazy, you know, that this person is, you know, you, could, you, you know, like this, there's a sense of a gradual unfolding of knowledge of each other. Well, God uses this same pattern, and he does it over the centuries, over the generations. And so then the catechism, in setting up this discussion of revelation, says that God has done this gradually over the history of the human race. That at the beginning, with the creation of the first humans, God revealed a lot about himself to them. But then they turn from him, and this changes, in some sense, the process of revelation. It makes it a little more urgent. You know, um, it, there might be someone in our life maybe a coworker or someone that, you know, you met and then it very quickly in the relationship, it kind of turned sour. But then you realize you have to kind of work with this person. You have to live with this person. And so the process of coming to know them is not just coming to know them, but also to repair this relationship, to make it stronger, to make it healthy, to, to bring it to the point that it needs to be. And so that's what happens quickly after the first humans, after Adam and Eve, is that revelation is now not just about this is God and this is what I'm into and this is what you should know about me, but it's also about, hey, um, this is how we're going to fix this problem. This is how we're going to um, fix um, the fall. This is how um, we're going to make you into 
the, the, the people that I have created you to be. So there's both a, um, what we might call a, um, a pedagogical, a teaching component now of Revelation, that it's revealing something about God, but there's also a therapeutic model. So it's also healing. Revelation is healing our relationship with God in the process. And so then there is this covenant with Noah, and we begin to see this pattern that when God reveals himself, he doesn't just say, hey, you know, this, here's something new about me that you didn't know about me. It's also a building up of the relationship. It takes the relationship a next step. So in courtship, um, however it has devolved or evolved at this point, you know, there is the first date where you might know a little bit about the person, and then there's a second date, and there might be a little more knowledge and a little bit um, closer intimacy at that point. And then it keeps going. So with Noah, there is, an evol- there is a development, not just in the knowledge that the human race has of God, but also in their closeness to God after that fall. And then with Abraham, we see another big step, another revelation. And then with Moses and then the subsequent prophets, again, covenants, these um, pacts between God and the human race. What's interesting is part of God's strategy is that he decided to focus on one small group that he would use um, as a bridgehead to work with the rest of the human race. That revelation and that repair, we might say, um, that comes with revelation, finds its fullness in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. So God sends his own Son, the Word itself, Word himself, revelation himself, the Word of God. We see in paragraph 65. So that not only will we know definitively the fullness of God, that he has revealed himself fully in his Son, but also that our relationship with the Father might be fully healed through the gift of that Son. And with that then, and I think we need to emphasize these last two paragraphs of this section, 66 and 67, a couple points. With the coming of Jesus Christ, revelation is ended. Public revelation is ended. He is the fullness of revelation. The catechism will, in the course of these next um, sections, talk about revelation and use different words, different or different phrases and expressions. So we can say that revelation is the word of God, both in the sense that Jesus Christ is the fullness of revelation. He is revelation itself. He is all that the Father has said about himself in the world. Um, So with him, it is the end. Um, We also use this phrase, deposit of faith, which is almost a synonym to the Word of God. When we use the phrase Word of God, it expresses all that the Father has revealed and communicated in its fullness, in the one word, Jesus Christ. 
The deposit of faith is another way of expressing this in the sense that it is all that God has revealed to his people, to the church that is gathered around that has been gathered around his son and formed by his son. It is the content of everything that has been revealed. The truth um, that has been handed on. We might think of it like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Or perhaps this analogy of like a cedar chest. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, in the hills where I'm from, um, when a woman would get married, her father would make a chest out of cedar. And she would put her wedding dress in there and her photo albums and everything else that she would hoard over time. Um, And this was sort of a deposit of everything that was essential to the story of her life. Um, So in some ways, we have been given this deposit of faith. The church has been given this deposit of faith to hand on and to be faithful to. Um, To wrap up, um, just a couple definitions in that paragraph 67. There's a distinction between public revelation, which is what God has revealed through um, the people he has sent over the ages, which is a part of that deposit of, is that deposit of faith, versus private revelation. So sometimes we use revelation in the sense of private revelation. So for instance, um, Our Lady of Lourdes to Bernadette Subaru, or Our Lady of Fatima to the three kids at Fatima, or the Jesus when he appeared to St. Mary Margaret Alacoque, Margaret Mary Alacoque. Private revelations like those um, do not add anything new to what has been revealed um, by Jesus Christ. It does, they do at times emphasize different points that we need to be reminded of. Um, and then there's another line that's used there which we should just read this sentence. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the census fidelium knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ or his saints to the church. This census fidelium is this notion that um, the people in the church, laity, religious, clergy, If they are in a state of grace and are faithful to the church, um, faithful to the life of Christ and the sacraments, have this ability to discern and to understand what is sound teaching, what is solid teaching, what is part of the deposit of faith versus that which is not. Um, It's a point that we'll talk about later. And then... A final point is is that, again, we emphasize, after the death of the last apostles, those who were closest to Jesus, there is no more revelation. Now, there are some um, groups who will propose that other revelations have come about, either that Christ has appeared at some other age to reveal or some other place to reveal something new, or that God has sent some new prophet to reveal something. But we make clear that 
the Father has said everything that he has to say in the word that is his Son that he has sent. Um, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.